Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 24th, 2022, the day after some big primary results and some not so great for Republicans. In New York's 19th Congressional District, for instance, Republicans lost a special election that they thought they were going to win. The polls showed them winning. Uh, uh, Mark Molinaro ended up uh, losing that uh, that seat. It was a special election. It was only going to be good for another few months anyway. And Molinaro is going to be running in a different uh, redrawn district in November against a different candidate. Uh, but this was a district that was, uh, you know, on the cusp and at least arguably was going to be a bellwether for the for the uh, upcoming midterms, the red wave. And of course, a lot of media outlets are using this as a bellwether, right? Saying, hey, the Republicans' red wave is dissipating. It's gone. Dobbs has killed it. The end of Roe has killed it. And, and you know, that's certainly a possible takeaway. Uh, Dave Wasserman over at the Cook Report, I think, has some better thoughts on this, which is that it basically performed at the same level with a much, much smaller percentage of the electorate as it did in November 2020. And I don't know that you can draw a whole lot of uh, predictive um hints from a special election turnout anyway but of course both parties play this game so democrats are going to have some bragging rights there but republicans are getting bragging rights too in a in regular primary elections and school board elections especially in florida where ron desantis went out of his way something unusual for uh, sitting governors to do to get personally involved in school board elections he endorsed uh 30 candidates in different school boards um, and ended up with an 83% success rate um, promoting conservative school board members. And in fact, a couple of the school boards flipped into solidly conservative majorities. And of course, this is big news just on its own. School boards getting more conservative is, is a continuation of the same type of grassroots uh, momentum that we saw in uh, Virginia in in last year's uh, statewide elections, where Glenn Youngkin scored a surprising win over Terry McAuliffe in a blue state. Virginia is a blue state. Uh, and it was on the basis of parental rights and education, which is the actual name of the bill that Ron DeSantis um, championed this year, which the media characterized as a don't say gay bill, very, very falsely characterized it as a don't say gay bill. Um, the media piled on to Ron DeSantis, Hollywood piled on to Ron DeSantis, corporate America piled on to Ron DeSantis over this. Well, Ron DeSantis just basically uh, stuck his thumb in everybody's eye by pointing out that actually his bill represents the mainstream. And of course, we saw this in polling. When you actually asked people about the policies that were in this bill, and the policies that were in this bill was that you weren't going to teach gender theory to kids under the under the fourth, you know, below the fourth grade, and that sex education and you know so-called gender theory uh, would only be taught in age-appropriate manners from the fourth grade forward. Uh, large majorities, even majorities of Democratic voters, thought that that was good policy, uh, and I mean, overall, we're talking like seventy percent, and the media kept calling this extreme. Well, Ron DeSantis just got the last laugh on that, um, and so did the parents of Florida. And now Democrats have to ask themselves, and the media should be asking themselves, who are the extremists in this? 
Now, All Pundit's got a fun post coming up. I have a post about that already. By, by the time you see this, my post will be up. Possibly All Pundit's will also be up. He's got a fun post coming up about Charlie Crist's response to this. Of course, Charlie Crist ended up beating Nikki Freed yesterday, as, as, as expected, for the Democratic nomination to challenge Ron DeSantis um, uh, for the uh, governor, uh, for the gubernatorial race in Florida in November. And Charlie Crist, is, his response was, well, if you're a DeSantis voter, I don't want your vote. <laughs> Maybe Chris should think that through a little bit because those school board elections are showing that there are a lot of people out there who don't think that Ron DeSantis is a hater, which is exactly what Chris called voters who are supporting Ron DeSantis. This is sort of like a deplorables moment, Florida style. And Charlie Crist is probably the last guy in the world to get up and talk about this because Charlie Crist has flip-flopped all over the place in Florida politics. Um, you can't pin this guy down. If you don't like his position, wait five minutes, you'll get another one. And I suspect that that's going to be the case here. But uh, Florida is an interesting, is going to be very, very interesting. We may have some news about um, Florida coverage too coming up at hot air soon, but not right now. <laughs> We're going, to be, we're going to be focusing on Florida. Everybody's going to be focusing on Florida. We're going to find ways to specifically focus on Florida, so stay tuned for that. Um, John's got a post coming up about another Florida race, Rebecca Jones, who was, of course, the person who uh, accused Ron DeSantis of trying to squelch information about COVID-19, and then it f turned out that she was a raving conspiracy theorist who was actually lying about the data that supposedly DeSantis was covering up. Well, Democrats nominated her to run for office, too. So uh, John Sexton's going to have something on that. Uh, what else is going on? Well, we're, you know, both Allopunnet and I have takes on the on what uh, the New York primary and red uh, means for the red wave. Um, the Washington Free Beacon has a really interesting report on Raphael Warnock and how he actually put money into the hands of the church that's still paying him $120,000 a year for housing allowances while he's in the Senate, which technically doesn't violate the ethics rules, at least the letter of the ethics rules in the Senate and the House for that matter too, that's the same rule, uh, but um, certainly violates the spirit of it. Uh, I don't know if, I don't know if that, uh, I, I don't know if Herschel Walker is going to pick up on that effectively enough to make it an issue in the election, but he should. Carolyn Maloney is crying sexist systems and misogyny as the reason for her loss to uh, Gerald Nadler in the Democratic primary. <laughs> so I'm totally comfortable with that explanation. Democrats, sexist, misogynist, fine by me. I don't think that's actually what was going on there. I question why they were running against each other in the first place. One of them should have picked a different district to run in. Um, both of them should really have retired. They've both been in Congress uh, for 30 years. And maybe it's time for some fresh blood. They're both in their mid-70s. They've been around forever. This was an opportunity maybe to get somebody new and fresh into that slot. It wasn't going to, this isn't a, a district that Republicans were going to win anyway. So find somebody new that, you know, M Maloney and, and Nadler could get behind. Or have one of them pick a different district in in the United States, according to the Constitution, you don't have to live in your House district to represent it. You have to live in the same state as that district does. Now, politically speaking, it's much better if you live in the district, clearly. But I think voters in this instance would have forgiven a uh, so-called carpetbagging effort 
because the fact that the lines got redrawn and you know so you you do that maybe you move you know maybe you maybe you sell your house in the district after the election you move into the district if you end up winning it apparently we've got an amber alert here in texas <laughs> so my phone's going off but uh Maybe that's just telling me that I should wrap things up so you can get to the you can get to the actual meat of today's podcast, which is an interview with Eric Bain of Reason.com about FBI about FBI dishonesty in warrants and um, and, and affidavits and and searches and raids that have nothing to do with Mar-a-Lago or Donald Trump. There's a pattern that's emerging here, and he and I talk about that pattern. We also talk about the risks and the dangers of listening to people who say we shouldn't bring it up because, oh, somebody might get, you know, some extremist might do something stupid. Um, that's not on people who are offering legit, legitimate criticisms of abuses of power. Uh, and I think it's high time that we assert that and make sure that people understand that when we are criticizing the way law enforcement does business, it's because we want to make sure it does business properly, that it is abiding by law and order while enforcing law and order. And so Eric Bame of Reason.com and Eric Bame 87 I believe is his Twitter handle. He'll tell you that during the course of our conversation. That's coming up next at the Ed Morrissey Show. And then stand by for uh, a pitch to subscribe, not just to my podcasts, uh, but also to the Hot Air VIP and VIP Gold programs. I will be on with Cam Edwards this afternoon on VIP Gold Chat. So if you're a member already, join us then. Have fun, and thanks again for listening to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me right now is Eric Bame from Reason.com, and he wrote a great post that will give you all sorts, well, not post, it's an article. It's a full-length uh, article analysis. It is uh, It is going to give you a, a big sense of deja vu because it certainly did with me. You've got the FBI. You've got a federal magistrate. You've got a search warrant. And you've got the FBI telling the federal magistrate what they want to do with the search warrant. And it turns out that maybe that's not quite exactly what the FBI had in mind. And the uh, most interesting part of this is this is a case that has nothing to do with national security. And it's a case that Eric and Reason.com have been following for quite some time. In fact, are involved in through uh, amicus briefs at the uh, at the federal level. Eric, first off, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Great to be here, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Well, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, clearly that you're a radical extremist because you're 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 questioning the credibility of the FBI. Shame yeah. on you, sir. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, when I was writing this piece, I said to my editor, there's got to be some way to like frame the tweet that we'll send out about this piece in which it does basically the thing that you just said, right? Where it's like, oh, uh, the FBI had an affidavit to go search some stuff. And it, it turns out that they lied about or they, did, they didn't fully disclose what they were going for. And like a way to do it without being specific enough so that people would think, oh, this must be a story about Trump and Mar-a-Lago. Um, of course, it's not, but it is a story. I think it's a story that does uh, shed some light on on at least uh, in this one case, you know, the way the FBI uh, handled and, and sort of approached this investigation into a, a, a vault, a, a private vault company in uh, Los Angeles that it was investigating. And uh, the, the end result here, we can talk about the specifics. I, I know yeah. we'll get into that. But the end result here is that uh, dozens of people had their safe deposit boxes taken by the FBI. The FBI went through uh, the contents of those safe deposit boxes 
taxes, uh, despite the fact that, uh, you know, even though the business was under investigation, even though the business was subject to this warrant, the, the personal belongings of all these people obviously were not subject to that warrant. And in fact, the judge in issuing the warrant specifically told the FBI, you may not use this as an opportunity to search these boxes uh, to, uh, you know, to launch further criminal investigations. But that's what it certainly appears the FBI did. Well, I mean, it is what the FBI ended up doing. You, you, and again, Reason's been covering this case for quite some time. And, uh, you know, and it was just interesting that it kind of dropped at the time it did, right? Because uh, first off, this raid took place in March, 2021. Yeah. Um, and this has been something that you've been investigating as a journalist for quite some time. And it's right up reason.com's alley too by the way i'm a big fan of reason so you know i read a lot of the stuff that goes on over there and i'm always interested in uh getting the libertarian approach to things and this is one of those issues that i think it really is it shows the value of a government skeptical perspective when you're when you're reporting on this and i just want to focus on that for a minute before we get into the the specifics of this yeah. which is that you know of late Eric, we've been hearing an awful lot of it. If you're government skeptical, you're on the side of the extremists. You're inciting violence and and yeah. and and threats against the FBI if you question their integrity or if you question their credibility. And I mean, look, I mean, I'm a law and order kind of guy, but I kind of like my law and order agencies to you know behave in a law and order fashion. I'm sort sure. of like I'm sort of like Andy McCarthy. I. I've met FBI agents. I think that the, individually they're great, but the organization has real issues. And this isn't even a political um, area. And you can see that the FBI has real issues in representing itself honestly in court, which is not law and order, Eric, at least not as I understand it. Yeah, I think I, you know, I watched Merrick Garland's statement. Uh, what was that now? A little more than a week ago, uh, when in the, you know, he finally made a, a statement about the the Mar-a-Lago situation, and uh, he did, you know, not like he gave a lot of specifics, but at one point in there, he like makes a, a sharp pivot to like, how dare anybody question, you know, the the professionalism or like the the accuracy, the hard work of our FBI agents, um, and and sort of turned it into this like diatribe about like uh, nobody should be questioning the FBI, and I was standing there watching that, knowing that we been reporting on this story you know that involves the <laughs> fbi for a year now and uh, knowing that i had another story in the works at the time about you know this this same piece that we're talking about here about how the fbi had kind of misled the magistrate judge uh in getting this warrant in california and i just sort of laughed at that because it's like i mean you know okay sure he could say whatever he wants but like in a, in a country in a, in a democracy in america like we should always be skeptical of whatever the FBI or law enforcement are, are telling us. Uh, and that's why the, the legal process works the way it does. Like the FBI, you know, may not get away with the, some of what they tried to pull in this uh, situation in Los Angeles. And that's that's hopefully what the justice system will provide because it's it's not just that law enforcement says you're suspected of a crime, uh, we're gonna bust in and, and, and raid you and arrest you or whatever, right? You have to go through a process to prove that crimes actually did happen. Um, and that's really important. And so that there is sort of skepticism built into the system. And I like to think that uh, us at Reason, I think libertarians in general tend to be, uh, we, we do take that approach of sort of, you know, l let the government prove its case before we're going to believe whatever they're telling us. It's exactly correct. And, you know, frankly, it shouldn't just be the libertarians who take that approach, but, you know, it should be the conservatives, it should be the liberals, it should be everybody that takes that yeah. approach because government is supposed to work for us and not the other way around. And it, it, this system is supposed to be built for accountability. 
And uh, that's the reason why I was very frustrated listening to Merrick Garland, listening to Christopher Ray, listening to various yep. members of Congress say the same thing, listening to Mike Pence, who I admire um, as a as a public figure, even before he was vice president. I admired Mike Pence. I, um, but he's dead wrong on this. I mean, you have to question these things and you have to be willing to discuss these things in public. And the fact that there are a few nutcases out there doesn't absolve us of our responsibility, really, our civic responsibility to hold these law enforcement agencies accountable for their behavior. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you, there are, there's also the danger of going across the line, right? I think there's right, the skepticism absolutely. is important, yeah. but the, you know, uh, having, you know, a, and again, everybody's allowed, you know, you're allowed to carry a gun within, you know, whatever <clears throat> rules your state or locality might have. But, you know, having armed protests outside of the FBI field office in Phoenix, that I think to me, something like that goes across the line, maybe from skepticism to like, you know, you're just sort of upping the ante even further. Yeah. There's obviously some people who have gone further than that. And I, you know, I would say that's, you know, that's outside of of the sort of thing that we're talking about here. Just but, as, yeah, just I think that sort of skepticism is yeah. essential. And I think just to your point here, too, I mean, it's important to note that like when when Trump was running for office, you know, he wanted the FBI to investigate Hillary Clinton. Right. Like he yeah. was fully on board. And I think Republicans and conservatives in general were fully on board with the idea of uh, of using the FBI, you know, in that instance to go after somebody they disagreed with. And now the shoe is on the other foot. And obviously everybody feels differently about it. The The situations are not the same. So no. the comparison is is strained maybe a little bit. But uh, I think we do see this strain on, on both the left and the right. We see this like desire to use law enforcement, use the FBI in particular to go after political opponents. And that like that worries me outside of any of the specifics of any of these cases. That just worries me as a trend in politics. Well, I think it worries me because clearly the, the FBI has has figured out the political wins. <laughs> and and rather than in the Department of Justice, for that matter, too, and rather than approach it neutrally i think that there's sure. there's some issues with that as well but that's i mean that's that's one of the issues right but the other issue is that they're just not behaving properly and that's what your piece at reason.com is all about now this is the this is about the raid that the fbi conducted and we can say raid i think <laughs> because not only did they they take yeah. stuff to search it but they actually took stuff to basically uh, plunder it. And as we're going to get to in just a moment, this is an FBI raid of U.S. private vaults, which is a, uh, a private sector business. This is not a bank. So it's not like FDIC or anything else like that, that operates safe deposit boxes and that the FBI suspected um, was had some customers that were using it to, you know, to commit crimes, you know, hide assets. I'm not even exactly sure what all the crimes were, maybe, I guess, money laundering and, and, yep. and tax evasion, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, is that this isn't, you know, this wasn't the, um, this wasn't Mafia Incorporated, right? This is an actual business that operates and there are, they have a lot of customers, most of whom aren't breaking the law. Most of them just wanted a safe deposit box and they insisted to a federal magistrate, I should emphasize that magistrate not an actual district yep. court judge that their search was simply going to be to inventory the boxes of the people who they were um, they were suspected of committing crimes and that they had no uh, intention of seizing and in, in as it happened um, of um, you know permanently seizing uh, the, the the stuff that they found in these boxes and tell me what happened in, in reality here. 
Yeah, we can go back. And I think it's just funny because the way you point out that like, well, there, I mean, there was a legitimate criminal investigation going right. on here. There was, yeah. you know, and, and I think there are there. There are legitimate criminal charges. And it does seem from what I've looked at from the legal documents, it does seem like they were building a legitimate case against the company itself. But the company, of course, has uh, 800 some safe deposit boxes that it kept in its vault. And uh, in one of the early legal filings, one of the first things I wrote about this case, the, like the amusing detail that really caught my eye was that the uh, prosecutors in the case admitted that, uh, quote, some of the company's customers were, quote, legal, honest citizens. But they, then, they, then they went on to say that, quote, the majority of the box holders are criminals who use the US private vaults anonymity to hide their ill-gotten wealth. Like that's that's not the way the legal system works. You don't get to say, well, we we believe that the majority of uh, people who live in this apartment building, let's say, are criminals. So that gives us the right to break down every door in the apartment building and search everybody's apartment for ill-gotten gains. Right. Like, right. no, you got you have to go like person by person and prove uh, or at least show that you have, you know, evidence uh, to suggest, you know, evidence some to, probable to, cause to, that, probable yeah. cause. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that's not what happened here. So they they were building a case against the company. They got a warrant. Uh, they went to a magistrate judge and, and showed that they had probable cause to uh, to raid the business and take the business's assets. So what they're looking for there and what the warrant lets them take are things like the computers, the cash registers, the records that the business has. Um, and then the business, of course, also has 800 some safe deposit boxes. And so they asked the magistrate judge for permission to take what are called the nests of safe deposit boxes. That's like the superstructure in which the boxes are housed. Right. And they were allowed to take those because it's it becomes a security issue, right? If you if you shut down the business and you and you are taking other things out of the business, you can't just leave those 800 safe deposit boxes there. They have to be taken into police custody just to protect them. The question then becomes and where a lot of the legal proceedings over the last year have have dealt with in this case is what do you do with the boxes once you have them? And uh, plaintiffs, there are, there are several plaintiffs, some of them anonymous, some of them who have come forward and, and put their names on the record, who are going through various attorneys and, and various legal efforts here to get their stuff back. They say that, look, all the safe deposit boxes had contact information, either taped to the lid or sometimes just as soon as you opened it up, it said, like, you know, if there's an emergency, if there's an issue, contact this person. And that's the extent to which the uh, the FBI should have had to go through the boxes to figure out to get this stuff back to the to its rightful owners. But of course, that's not what happened. We now have because of these lawsuits, we now have uh, photos and videos of FBI agents uh, literally rummaging through these boxes, uh, counting up the the amount of cash that's in there, uh, stashing away you know jewelry and gold and family heirlooms. In one case, there's one uh, person who I interviewed who uh, they they lost. They've now gotten back, but they thought for a while they had lost some important fairly uh, family heirlooms that were in one of their safe deposit boxes. Uh, these are overwhelmingly, despite what the prosecutors might say, it appears to me like these are overwhelmingly innocent Americans who are not suspected of anything, who are using a safe deposit box the way anybody would. Um, and uh, and they've now had to go through like a, a forfeiture process uh, just to try to prove their own innocence, even though they're not suspected of any crime. Yeah, to me, this is um, what's, you know, it, it's 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 this idea that when you're reading this, it's, I'm trying to think of the right word, the arrogance, I guess it is, of saying that law enforcement really shouldn't have to, um, shouldn't have to show its its cards, even to a federal judge, yeah. in order to get, in order to do what it is that they want. Um, and this kind of came up in the Mar-a-Lago thing too. And I mean, we can talk a little bit about the, the, the parallels between the Mar-a-Lago 
search and and the raid here. Um, but Andy McCarthy over at National Review, who's a former you know federal prosecutor, so he knows something about this stuff. Yeah. Um, and he's done national security, terrorism, as well as just regular you know criminal law enforcement at uh, as, as you know assistant U.S. attorney at the Department of Justice. And what he was saying is, you know, you can kind of figure out that what they're actually looking for at Mar-a-Lago are crimes that are yeah. not in not in this. This is just a predicate. And this is yep. something that the FBI does. And it's not it's not terribly ethical, but they can but they can do this. If they can establish that there's probable cause for one thing, they can expand and do other things. And this to me reminds me of that, except that I think that it even goes farther. <laughs> in terms of a false predicate, which is a, first off, they misrepresented what they were going to do with the, with the material they seized. I mean, flat out as, as your reporting shows, but B, I mean, they're going after crimes that aren't even, uh, you know, the, the, the vault companies crimes. They're looking at everybody just to, you know, peek under their mattresses basically to see if there's any evidence of any crime that they can then go back and open new investigations on. And that's precisely what search warrants, uh, well, not search warrants, it's precisely what the Fourth Amendment, <laughs> you know, expressly forbids is that type of, is that type of search. And, it's a general warrant. It becomes a general warrant right. at a certain point, right? Which is, which the Fourth Amendment protects us against. Yeah. Yes. Right. And, and, and I'm sorry, go ahead. I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you respond. Well, no, that. I was just going to say that I think that the, the news here, the newest developments that we reported on this past week is the fact that the FBI had, uh, so they had gone through this process to obtain the warrant. And as I said earlier, the warrant explicitly said that they couldn't use the boxes or the contents of the boxes for any additional criminal searches or seizures. And they, and they seem to have basically disregarded that. But what we learned in the past couple of weeks is uh, through some affidavits that the FBI and federal prosecutors were trying to keep uh, off the record. They were trying to keep this redacted in some of the legal proceedings that's going on here. And the judge in the case uh, just uh, a week ago said, no, you can't, you can't do that. This stuff can go on the record. So we now know uh, and the public knows that uh, the FBI was plotting, you know, even up to like a year before they got the warrant to do exactly what they did, which is go through the boxes and and initiate forfeiture claims against anything that they thought might be the proceeds of of drug deals or other criminality in the boxes. Now, they didn't say that to the magistrate judge. And in fact, again, the magistrate judge specifically forbade them from doing this. But it's obvious from what the FBI uh, has has said, what FBI agents involved in the case have said in various depositions that uh, this was the plot all along. Uh, I think the real damning quote actually comes from FBI Special Agent Jesse Murray in one of the depositions. He says that uh, we had already determined that there was probable cause to move forward with civil forfeiture proceedings against the contents of the safe deposit boxes. And he said that six months or he said that that was their, you know, they'd already decided that six months before they went for the warrant. So this was the plan all along, exactly what you're saying, like is to go find additional criminality uh, above and beyond what they what they had uh, probable cause to go investigate. And basically open ended because they yeah. weren't even specific about the, you know, in- individual owners or, or renters, I should say, the, the lessees mm-hmm. of those lock boxes. The, the comparison to Mar-a-Lago, I think, is like, think about this. If they had maybe probable cause to go search 
Trump's uh, safe at Mar-a-Lago because they thought there might be some national security documents there. It would be if they then went to everybody else who was like a member of the Mar-a-Lago club, right? And said, well, we're right. going to search your personal belongings here at the club too. We're going to search the locker room uh, connected to the golf course or something like that. Uh, just because there might be other, you know, and who knows, there could be evidence of other crimes in there somewhere, right? But, right. Uh, but you don't get to just go do that. That's not the way the Fourth Amendment works. No, and this is part of the issue I think that people are starting to to kind of tumble to when it comes to, especially the federal government, is that there is such a large breadth of federal laws. And you see this in tax, you see this in taxes, you know, mm -hmm. most, you know, most, uh, I will say most egregiously, is that they become so complicated that basically, if you investigate somebody long enough, you can probably find some sort of, you know, ticky-tack violation that they that you can use to basically ruin their life. And that's that's the reason why we're protected against general warrants, because even back in the day, right, the founders, when they're writing this, they're going, yeah, we don't want a government that's just simply going to show up at your door and demand to go through all your stuff just to see if maybe you've committed a crime, even if they don't have any idea what it is that you're doing. We're actually at that point here in this particular case. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's uh, Harvey Silvergate, right, who wrote the book Three Felonies a Day, that like the average American could commit three felonies a day and not even be aware of it. Um, if somebody starts looking around, if they, you know, if somebody has access to your personal belongings, to your personal life, to all the information about your uh, financial dealings and your taxes and, and how fast you drive down the road, you know, you're going to get in trouble for something. Um, and that's, yeah, I mean, to your point, that's exactly why the Fourth Amendment exists. These protections are you know, a feature of, of the law system that came to us from England, right? Like this is basic Magna Carta stuff. You can go all the way back to, to that level right. of uh, like limitations on what law enforcement, what the crown in that case is allowed to do to try to find criminals uh, because individuals have to be secure in their property and have to have uh, a reasonable assurance of privacy uh, just to sort of allow normal life to function. Um, so we, yeah, right, right. This is the, this is sort of cuts to all of that, and I think we've had, you know, there's been decades now of overcriminalization of of all sorts of things, um, of federalizing lots of crimes that have moved from being state level crimes up to federal crimes, yep. and that just gives the FBI, federal law enforcement, it gives them massive leeway uh, to do to do exactly this sort of thing. Whether we're talking about Mar-a-Lago, whether we're talking about U.S. private vaults whether we're talking about uh, any other FBI investigation, like there's always other things they can get you on. Uh, don't, as any lawyer will tell you, if the FBI wants to talk to you about something, don't talk to them. <laughs> Go right. get a lawyer first and foremost. Don't ever fall in that trap. Yeah. Somebody actually asked me that the other day. I, I'm trying to remember where this was at. And I think they were trying to, it's sort of like a thought, you know, a, a thought experiment sort of thing, but I can't remember what it was. And they asked me, if the FBI called you up and asked you to come yeah. in and talk to them, would you do it? And I said, I would tell them that I'd be happy to do it as soon as I spoke to an attorney and had one representing sure. me. And they said, they said, you'd really do that? And I said, yeah, these days you're damn right. <laughs> you know, and I'm somebody who the FBI actually helped out. There was a, a serious death threat against me and the FBI did a fine job in dealing with that situation. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, um, and so, I mean, I, I don't have a particular animus to the FBI, but when you look at the way that they've been operating, especially over the last several years, and in cases like this that aren't even political, but they're simply, uh, they are just simply far overreaching and being uh, dishonest.
about what when it is. You said that it earlier. Doing. You said you said arrogance earlier. Arrogance, I think that yeah. describes. But the U.S. private vaults thing, I think that's the perfect example of of what this was. It was, uh, you know, it was an opportunity to go in and to score a, a huge forfeiture. Uh, uh, you know, an opportunity to, to forfeit lots of property, lots of cash. Uh, that uh, in many cases, government agencies, when they use these forfeiture laws, get to keep. Uh, so that's a perverse incentive in and of itself. But it's also it's an opportunity to, you know, to, to sort of take the shortcut. Maybe if, if we do believe there are, uh, let's say, a dozen people who are sco- storing their criminal proceeds in this uh, at this vault out of 800 boxes. Right. Well, you know, what the heck? What are what are 700 Fourth Amendment violations if we can take the shortcut to catching 10 criminals? Um, that's, that's the sort of mentality I think that dominates in, and not just in the FBI, but in law enforcement in general, but you can, I think that's sort of what you can see here is that this was an attempt to, to short circuit the way these investigations are supposed to go. Um, and you know, whether that's a, whether that's created by the the perverse incentive of civil forfeiture, whether it's, uh, you know, an overly ambitious, uh, overly ambitious special agent who's running the operation, who knows, number of different incentives that could be at play there. But uh, it's the sort of thing that uh, that leads to, you know, disregarding the sort of the guardrails that are there that are that are main that are supposed to be there in our constitutional system to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen. You know, Eric, I think you bring up a good point about incentives. I am very much an incentive. I'm a believer in incentives. What you incentivize, you're going to get more of what you disincentivize, you're going to get less of. You know, it's true in taxes. It's true in 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 penal law. It's true in all yeah. sorts of different um it's all sorts of different arenas. Um, incentives really, incentives and disincentives explain a lot about human behavior. Not everything, but explains a lot about human behavior, which is the reason why markets work, by the way, because uh, because human beings respond to incentives and markets are based on incentives. And it, those incentives, if they're properly organized and they're properly uh, modulated, should give you a really nice, efficient way of exchanging goods and, and, um, and wealth. Um, but you know, that aside, I, I do think that the, I, I do think that the problem is, uh, it can be worse. I think it's, I think it's a bigger problem for civil liberty when it happens at the federal yeah. level than when it happens at the state level, because I think that there's more at the state and local level, there is at least more opportunities for immediate, uh, accountability from the, um, you know, from the constituencies that are being served by those agencies, whereas, and you know, this, yeah. You know, as a libertarian, you know this, the higher up you go, the less accountability there is. And so if you've got the FBI that is out of control, which is exactly what this looks like in this case, I'm not even talking about Mar-a-Lago now, but just in this yeah. case alone, looks like the FBI is out of control. They're misrepresenting what they're doing to federal magistrates. They're basically operating on their own whim, um, untethered by constitutional restrictions. It's very difficult to, to, um, to pull that in. Uh, it's very difficult to correct that. And you have to have an administration that's willing to, you know, actually exert the authority necessary to reform that. And frankly, I don't see that in this administration. I'm not necessarily sure I saw a bunch of it in the last administration, despite, you know, some of the rhetoric that was being employed. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I, I mean, you could certainly imagine, and there certainly are a number of examples, and my colleagues at Reason cover these quite frequently, of local police departments and state police departments yep. violating people's rights just as badly as the FBI does. So it's not always the case that like smaller is is better or no, or, no, no. I, I and I agree with you. Local control, right? But but to your point, it is it is easier to fix those things. I think if a local police department is is off the chain, like somebody you you can move. Yep. If you can't do anything else, you can get out of town at least. Uh, you can't do that with the FBI. 
And, uh, and you know, it is generally easier to sort of fix those kinds of institutions because they're smaller, there's less, uh, less sort of a, a calcified uh, thing going on there. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly what this looks like. I think I'll just leave you with one more example from the case from my reporting here, which is yep. uh, the story of Joseph Ruiz, who was one of the people um, who has, has come forward. A number of the, the victims here, the plaintiffs in this case, have uh, kept themselves anonymous because of, uh, for various legal reasons. But Ruiz, he had $57,000 of cash taken from his safe deposit box in this raid. And uh, he was apparently suspected because he runs a private business, uh, an online business, in which he uh, specializes in turning liquor bottles into marijuana smoking devices, which puts him, you know, in a sort of business where you could imagine there might be some criminal uh, criminal elements involved Possibly. in some of these transactions, right? Uh, but of course, they didn't get a warrant to search for you know that that named him that, that searched his business. This was this was an example, I think, of what we were just saying of yep. somebody who, hey, if we can get his safe deposit box and we can go through it and we can bring in a drug sniffing dog, which is what they did. They had any of the money that was found in any of these eight hundred boxes. They ran it past the drug sniffing dog to see if it had uh, the scent of uh, of marijuana or other drugs on it. And, uh, you know, oh well, then we can use that then as probable cause to go after a person like Joseph Ruiz. But that's that's the shortcut that I was just talking about. Right. Like rather right. than building a case against him independent of this, uh, they thought they were going to be able to just go in here, take all these boxes under the guise of, of inventorying the contents. Um, you don't need a drug sniffing dog if you're inventorying the contents, the point at which you're bringing in a drug sniffing dog. That's uh, that's a new investigation. So, yeah, somebody needs to put a stop to this. I think the judge in the case, I should also say, uh, Judge Klausner has has been, I think, appropriately skeptical at every step of this process, as I've been following for the past year or so, and uh, and has sort of demanded that the government show their work. So I think he's handling this well. And it's not just he's not just acting as a rubber stamp for this forfeiture effort. Well, that's fine and good. But yeah. you have to ask yourself, what are the consequences of what you've already uncovered here? The, the, the false the false declarations to the court. I mean, mm -hmm. those are, uh, you know, those are submitted under at least a, a you know, a, a kind of perjury when you when you make material misrepresentations to to a to a court of any at any level, but especially at the federal level. I mean, people get disbarred for that. People get prosecuted for that. I mean, uh, you know, th that's that is literally a crime. Has anything been done along those lines to start instilling some accountability in this particular case for the particular abuses that took place here? Yeah, I'm not an attorney. I'm just, I'm not going to speak to like whether that is a crime or whether they're, you know, what they did here where it was, you know, that it's not that they misrepresented necessarily or lied, but it's just that they omitted certain details of their plan. I think it looks uh, it certainly looks bad. I think any casual observer would would look at this and conclude that uh, the, the full story was not told to the magistrate judge. Um, I think the bigger problem procedurally is that the, there were actual uh, limits placed in the warrant. As I've, I've said a couple of times, the warrant said you can't use the contents of the boxes to launch additional criminal investigations. And it seems pretty obvious to me with the steps like bringing in drug sniffing dogs, that that is exactly what they were doing. Yep. Um, and to me, that that should immediately shut down any sort of additional criminal, you know, if, if one of those people were to be brought in on charges that stem from this. I think what they ended up doing in an, in an attempt to get this shortcut, what they ended up doing is probably cut off a lot of possible prosecutions of uh, any criminal behavior that they may have uncovered. 
uh, that was connected to the U.S. private vault situation. But uh, yeah, no, in terms of accountability, I haven't haven't seen any of that yet. I think I think the most important thing in the short term is that people who had their stuff taken get it back uh, right. and, and in full. That has happened in a bunch of cases. There actually have been uh, several hundred of the boxes that were returned, um, including to some of the, the plaintiffs who we've talked to and whose stories we've covered at Reason. Uh, but there are still a, a bunch of others who are still trying to you know get back, just get back what they rightfully own. Well, you're going to be able to keep following this because Eric Bame and Reason.com are all over this story. Um, my fellow extremist, you know, <laughs> I, by the way, Eric, this is I, I, I'm holding up my 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 rosary. So according to The Atlantic, I'm a, I, I'm an extremist times two. So there you go. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I I'm having a lot of fun with that whole rosary story. So, yeah. just, you know, bear with me on this. That's but, a good one. Yeah, I, I like that one, too. And, and Eric, where can people find you? And, um, you know, I. Reason.com is where you're going to find this story, but where can people yeah. find you? Uh, my work is mostly at Reason.com because uh, I work there as a reporter and staff writer. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at EricBame87. That's B-O-E-H-M is my last name, number eight, number seven. Um, I post on there stories and updates and also like random musings about baseball. Uh, so follow me there if you get the chance. Well, all right. So on that note, I got to ask you one final question. Yeah. Die Hard, Christmas movie or not? Uh, yeah, I'm not actually a crazy diehard fan, which I, people bust me for all the time. Um, I, it's, I, yeah, sure. I guess it's a Christmas movie. Oh, you're never coming back movie, here, Eric. I you're suppose. never coming no, back. No, oh, no, you're an anti, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a fine movie for any season go. of the year. There yeah. you go. That's the, <laughs> and Eric, Eric Bame will be running for office shortly. So that, yeah, that's right. a great answer. He's got all the right instincts. <laughs> Eric Bame, thank you so much. Great fun talking with you. Hope we get a chance to do this again soon. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Ed. All right, stay tuned for just one more message from the Ed Morrissey Show coming right up. Thank you for watching and listening to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Be sure to subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to get alerted as soon as new episodes get published. You can support the Ed Morrissey Show and Hot Air's VIP reporting by becoming a VIP member, too. Visit hotairvip.com and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, all one word, for 40% off your membership. Choose VIP Gold and gain membership to access to all of the town hall sites. Thanks again for watching and listening.